0: Well this is the season of uh, time of year of gardening. How many of you how many of you have a garden? Flowers, vegetables. Some of you, all right. My boys they just they went off to children's church just now. They uh they spent the day, all day yesterday digging up sod in our yard to make a garden plot for us. And it's not a small plot. It's what 15 by 26, I think, is what we've marked out. And this is, you know, grass. How many, you know, if, you, if you've dug in grass and you have to dig it in there and turn it over and put the grass down so that it rots and so that the dirt is on top and you've got to loosen it up, you've got to add stuff to it. And they spent the whole day yesterday digging in the ground for a garden. Sebra, my wife, spent all day yesterday planting flowers. Now, there, if you know anything about gardens, you know that there's a couple things that gardens need. They have to have them the plants have to have them in order to grow. Plants need sun, so we have to put our garden plot in a place where the sun will get to it. They need rain. If they don't get rain, we need to water it. They need nutrients in the soil, so, you know, we use compost and, you know, if you cheat, you use miracle Grow and all that kind of stuff. And you, you have to feed them. Now, even more basic than those things, plants need something else to grow. They have to have both roots... And soil. Without roots and soil, there can't be any life, there can't be any growth, there can't be any fruit. Roots and soil are basic to a life of a plant. Now, that's the way it is with holiness as well. Holiness must have both roots and soil. The root of holiness is peace with God, and the soil in which that root buries itself. And out of which that root draws its life is the free grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. True holiness, real obedience to God, is not the fruit of terror or suspense or uncertainty. True holiness is the fruit of peace. It's the fruit of conscious peace with God and this peace must be rooted in grace. The peace that gives rise to holiness must be the result of, of coming face to face with the forgiving grace and love of God. In other words, you'll never really grow in holiness and practical obedience. This is, this is so important to get because it goes against the way we think. You will never really grow in practical obedience and holiness with God until you come to rest in the free grace of the Gospel. As long as you're uncertain about the free forgiveness and free righteousness offered to you in the Gospel, you'll never make strides in the Christian life. You'll never make progress in terms of obedience. Or to put it in in theological terms, put it in the terms of last week's sermon for those of you who were here last week. As long as you're uncertain about the realities of your justification, you will never be holy. You'll never make strides in your sanctification. Now for some of you, Probably that 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 doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense in your mind because you heard those of you who were here last week. You heard from Romans four that says to the one who does not work but trusts Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You heard last week that there's this rich blessing for those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered you learned about justification by faith alone, that your standing with God does not depend on your work. It doesn't depend on what you do or don't do. It depends on Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And you heard that and you said, but wait a minute, if all of that is true, if my acceptance with God is totally secure, if nothing I do can change my relationship with God as a Christian, as someone who's embracing Jesus Christ by faith, then why do I have to obey? Why bother? Why do I, what's the big deal? Why do I have to mess with this holiness stuff? Why shouldn't I just do whatever I want to do? I mean, if, if I'm already forgiven, and I'm already perfectly righteous in God's eyes, then why bother with obedience? Now, if some of you thought that last week, I rejoice. I hope. That some of you thought that last week. Because that potential misunderstanding has always been the result of an accurate presentation of the realities of justification by faith alone. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, he's he's writing the book of Romans. He wrote Romans 4 that we looked at last week. He writes Romans 5 that speaks of this this second Adam who comes and who who gives righteousness to his people, just like Adam, the first Adam, gave righteousness condemnation to His people. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes to give righteousness to His people. It's not based on what they've done. It's based on what He has done as their head. And Paul says all of that and he, he knows what people will think if they understand Him rightly. If all of that is true, Paul, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Romans 6, verse 1. 500 years ago, in the time of the Protestant Reformation, when men like Martin Luther rediscovered the truth of justification by faith alone, the free grace of God in the Gospel, it was exactly what the Church of Rome said about his preaching. They said, this man Martin Luther is just a man filled with lust and he wants to have a wife. So he's, he's making a system that lets him get married. He's an antinomian. He's against God's holiness. He's against God's law. We can write him off. 200 years ago, in the time of the, of the evangelical revival in America and in, in England, under men like Mark, or, uh, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, the same question came up 50 years ago. During the ministry of Martin Lloyd Jones, some of you will know him. He's a man who was a pastor in, in London, and people raised the exact same issue with his ministry. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this in a sermon on Romans 6. Listen to these words. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by, the, by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. The charge of, well then, why bother? Why do I have to obey? Why do I have to worry about holiness? The true preaching of the gospel always leads to the possibility of that misunderstanding, he says. He says there is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. Now listen to these words. i want to read a couple more lines from Lloyd-Jones that sound almost shocking to us. That's why I want to read them to us. Listen to what he says. He says, I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you had better examine your sermons again and you had better make sure that you really are preaching the salvation that's offered in the New Testament. If it hasn't been misunderstood, if the message that you preach hasn't been misunderstood to mean, well, then why bother with holiness? Then you better go back and check that you have really been preaching the gospel. He says the, the salvation that's offered in the New Testament is to the ungodly, to the sinner, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. And he says there's this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. So whenever people have rediscovered the free grace of God in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, people have always asked, then why be holy? If it doesn't depend on what I do, then why bother being holy? And I want to try to answer that question this morning. I want to show you that even as forgiven, justified sinners, God does indeed give you requirements to be holy, commands to be holy. But He also gives you reasons to be holy and He gives you resources to be holy. And we could look at all kinds of passages that teach us that. I want us to look at Titus chapter 3. It's just one of the many places in the New Testament that that makes that connection. He gives commands to be holy, but He gives reasons and resources. We're not left to ourselves. We're not left on our own strength. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's Word. Paul says to Titus, a young pastor, he says, "...remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures." passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. God gives us in these words very clear-cut requirements for holiness. But He reasons with us. He gives us reasons for it. And He also gives us resources that we can draw on in order to obey God. First of all, the requirements. Look at verses 1 and 2. He's clearly giving us very clear-cut, very practical, very precise, very you know, down-where-the-rubber-meets-the-road kind of, of requirements for holiness. He's not talking about this floating-around-in-the-sky kind of uh, stained-glass holiness. He's talking about something that's very real and very precise. Verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He's talking about, uh, in that verse, holiness that has to do with with how we respond, how we interact with governmental authorities. That's exactly what he's talking about here. How do you interact with the people that God has placed in authority over you? Now, is that a big deal? Do we need to hear instruction about that? Is that something that comes naturally? Do we naturally uh, want to obey the authorities over us? Do we naturally want to submit to them? We don't. That's why God needs to tell us to do it. He needs to give us commandments. And He gives us very specific commandments. He requires of us as Christians, verse 1, to be submissive to our rulers and authorities. Even though we're people who, whose who's king is God, whose citizenship is in heaven, we have duties on this earth and God requires us to willingly and voluntarily have this inner attitude of submissiveness toward every representative of human government. And the the Bible is filled with commands like that. Be submissive to every human institution for God's sake, Peter says. He commands us to be submissive to the authorities He's placed over us. But it's not just this inner attitude, this kind of vague, general inner attitude he requires us actually to be outwardly obedient to them. Look at verse 1. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. Not just to have a vague general feeling. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, I I, I like authority. it's It's good. But real obedience. Real obedience. Whatever this, Human government expects of you that does not contradict the commands and the expectations of God, God commands you to submit to it and to obey it. But he he requires more than that. It's not just inner submissiveness and outward obedience to the to the letter of the law. Look at look at the third thing in verse one. God requires us to be ready for every good work. So there's this inner submissive attitude towards authority, there's this this willingness, this readiness to obey, this obedience to But there's also this being ready for every good work. Going beyond what the government expects of us. Actively looking for opportunities to do good works. To promote the welfare of the society you're living in. That is what God commands of you. Now those are serious requirements. Those are things that are hard to do. Inward submissiveness, outward obedience, zealous good works. Those are things that don't come naturally. We have to be commanded to do those things. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he shifts from his requirements of us in the realm of human government to his requirements in the realm of our relationships with one another, with other people. And there are four specific commands in verse 2. Number one, God requires us to speak evil of no one. Now, is that easy? That's why we have to be told, isn't it? Speak evil of no one. We're used to speaking evil of people all the time. Gossip. Slander, speaking of people, making myself look good by making them look bad. We're used to that kind of thing. We have to be told not to do it. Number two, God requires us to avoid quarreling. We have to be told to avoid quarreling. What, quarreling is what comes naturally. We, all these fights and quarrels, the bickering that goes on at home between husbands and wives, between parents and children and, and friends, it's all out of the question. He says, avoid quarreling. Number three, he requires us to be gentle. To stop walking all, all over everyone else and, and yanking people around, manipulating them to get our way. Instead, he says, be meek and humble and gracious. Be gentle with one another. And the fourth specific command there in verse 2, he requires us to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now that kinda, that's a huge blanket command, isn't it? Can you imagine Perfect courtesy towards all people. What does that include? Fill in the blanks. What does that mean when you're driving down the road? To show perfect courtesy towards all people. To the guy in front of you who's, who's going the speed limit. When you want to be going, you know, 20 over. God commands you. To show perfect courtesy towards him, the uh, you know the, the the woman in the checkout line in front of you who can't find her checkbook or something you know and you're getting all hot under the collar and upset because she's not fitting into your plan for your life. Perfect courtesy towards all people. Uh, he says we should use good manners. Isn't that what he's talking about? Part of it. Now. Who does he say to show perfect courtesy towards? What's it say? Brothers and sisters, right? Nice people, right? It says show perfect courtesy towards all men. Even those who are rude, even those who are inconsiderate and nasty and belligerent, God commands you with His authority, with His sovereign command in His Word, you must show perfect courtesy even towards them. Now, those are some specific practical commands. We could talk about every one of those things and, and really uh, spin those out and, and talk about the details of what that looks like. That's not my purpose in this sermon. I want to show you something else. My point is showing you that God commands you to do things. He has very specific practical requirements of you, if you're a Christian, that you must be holy and you must obey Him. Now, is that all that there's, there is in this passage? Does God just give you requirements? Does He just give you a list of things that you must do? Here's the list. Obey the government. Submit to them. Do good works. Be kind. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all men. There you go. You know what to do. Now go and do it. Is that, is that what He does? He doesn't do it. He gives reasons for you to be holy. Look at verse 3. 4. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Now what does verse 3 start with? little word. 4. What's he doing with that? Those are some of the most important words in the Bible. That you can't blow over them and act like they're not there. 4. Because he gives commands... Verses 1 and 2, and then he says, here's why, here's the reason. He reasons with us. He gives specific requirements and then he gives the reasons. He, gives the, he answers the question, why? Be submissive to your rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Why? Because you used to be just like them. You used to be just like those people out there that's so hard to show perfect courtesy towards. You used to be like those rulers that it's so hard to be submissive to. You were foolish just like them. You used to be senseless and ignorant about spiritual things just like they are. You know what it's like to have a foolish heart that says, God, I don't care what you say, I don't care. What you want me to do, I don't care what you forbid. I don't care about you. I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. You know exactly what that's like, don't you? You know what that's like because that's the way you were. That's the way I was. He says you used to be disobedient. You used to disobey your parents and disobey your teachers and disobey the government and disobey God and disobey your own conscience just like your unbelieving neighbors and friends still do. You used to be exactly the same way. And you used to be, he says, led astray. Led astray into all kinds of superstition and false teaching and, and living in your own little world of, of reality that you've made for yourself that had no room for God. You know what that's like. He says, you used to be slaves to various passion, various passions and pleasures. You know what that's like. We know what that's like having our lives controlled and shaped and pushed and pulled by our lust for pleasure and money and popularity and ease and on and on and on. Pushed and pulled slaves in chains by what we wanted. He says you used to pass your days in malice and envy. Scraping and clawing and backbiting and fighting to get what you didn't have. And he says he used to be hated by others, offensive to other people, repulsive to other people. And you used to spend your life hating others, he says. And the only thing that you cared about was looking out for number one. And if that meant stepping on people and, and putting people down and stabbing people in the back and climbing all over them, so be it, just as long as you got what you wanted, just as long as you are looking out for number one. God says that that is what every Christian in this room was like. And, it's what every unbeliever in this room is like right now. You look at that list and you say, but that's not me. I wasn't that way. I was nice. I was good. And what are you doing as you say that? What are you doing? God Sorry, you know, you got it wrong this time. That's not me. Yeah, it is. That's what God says. Paul is writing to a whole church of people. He's writing to, to a pastor of a whole church of people. Actually, churches of people filled with people. And he says, this is what they're all like. This is what they were all like. Every one of them. And it might have looked differently for some of you, but this is what you're like apart from Christ. Those of you who are sitting in this room right now who have not repented, who haven't turned away from your sin and yourself and trusted Jesus Christ, this is what you're like now. And the fact that you don't see it is proof that it's still true. Blinded. Foolish. Now here's the point. If that is what every one of us used to be like, then how can we possibly be so proud and arrogant as to look down on people as if we were better than them? It's what we do, isn't it? I don't have to respect him. He's not a Christian. I don't have to show perfect courtesy towards her. I don't have to be gentle with him. I don't have to be kind to them and speak words that are are good about them. I don't have to do any of that because they're in a category that is below me. I'm up here, they're down there, and I can do whatever I want to do with them because I'm better than them. Those people out there, those quote-unquote sinners out there, are people who are just like us. And so God is reasoning with us. He's reasoning with you. He's saying that you are required to have this deep sense of compassion and understanding and pity and kindness towards unbelievers because you are not better than they are. In fact, you are exactly like they are now. That's what you used to be. We're all cut from the same piece of cloth. It's so easy to forget that, isn't it? So easy to live in a way that forgets the darkness, that forgets the superstition, that forgets the bondage, that forgets the hatred, that forgets the malice. It's so easy to live in such a way that that assumes that the reason I'm different than my neighbors is because there's something good in me. I'm smart. I'm wise. I'm holy. I'm righteous. And they're scum. And we look down our noses at them and we avoid them and we despise them. God says, You must never do that. Do not speak evil of them. Do not quarrel with them, but be gentle with them and show perfect courtesy. Now, those are God's requirements. He gives specific requirements, He gives reasons for it. Now, how would you feel if that was the end of this passage? How would you feel if that was the end of this sermon? Some of you would say, well, great, you know. Think about it. What has God done here? Would you feel encouraged if that was where this passage stopped? Would you feel motivated to obey God's requirement to be holy? Would you feel enabled to obey God's requirements? Or would you feel overwhelmed with a sense of your own weakness and emptiness and powerlessness to obey? Would you be weighed down with a sense of of dread? You should. You should. So far, all we have here is God's requirements to be holy and His reasons to be holy. If we stop there, we'd be left with a message that crushes us, that discourages us, that ultimately leads to despair and to failure. You might whip yourself up for a while and and feel good about yourself that you didn't yell at the guy in front of you and lay on your horn. You might feel good about yourself, but it's not going to last. If that's where this passage ended, it will lead you to despair and to failure because you can't be like this. You can't, in and of yourself, have a submissive attitude to your authorities. It's not not in us. You can't, in and of yourself, be kind and gentle and genuinely gracious towards unlovely people. You can't do these things. And if you hear these requirements to be holy and then look inside yourself... For the strength to do them, you will fall on your face because you and I are like old Mother Hubbard's cupboard. Right? You look at, open it up, look inside, it's bare, there's nothing there. That's us. We don't have the willpower or the self-control to do these things in the ways that God commands and requires that we do them. Thank God, though, this isn't the end of this passage. He doesn't just give us requirements and reasons. He gives us resources. Look at verse 4. But. See that little three-letter word that verse 4 starts with? But. Yes, you used to be foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. Yes, but something happened something changed someone intervened it's not the way it is anymore look what it says but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness how could it possibly be that we are saved by works done by us in righteousness verse 3 is true of us you see what you see what he's saying it can't be by works done in righteousness because you don't have any righteousness. You can't do these things. When the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, burst onto the scene, He saved us. Not because we were good. He saved us according to His own free mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, even when we were dead in the wickedness and the hopelessness and the the slavery of our sin, God made us alive again. He regenerated us. He gave us new life. He took out that cold, hard, stony heart and put in soft, living hearts. Purified us. Washed us. Cleansed us. He renewed us by the Holy Spirit. He transformed us into people who can be gentle, who can show perfect courtesy towards all people. And it says that He did all of this through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see what He's doing? He's talking to us about justification. We stand to receive an inheritance. We stand to receive an inheritance that is coming to Jesus Christ Himself. We stand to inherit all of the blessings that the Righteous One, Jesus Christ, earned for all who will hope in Him. And all of this is true of you if you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. He assumes he's talking to men and women who are justified by the grace of God. Who have been declared not guilty and who have been declared perfectly righteous. He doesn't just give us requirements. He gives us motivations. He gives us enablement. He gives us His Holy Spirit. He gives us resources that we use as justified sinners in order to obey God. Here's my point. The wonderful, rich truths of the free grace of God in the Gospel that justify sinners like you and me, those truths do not lead us to break God's law. They do not lead us into a life of looseness. They don't lead us into a life of licentiousness, of I don't care about God's law. I'll do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. Now I can do whatever I want. That is not what a true knowledge of the grace of God leads you to. It's exactly the opposite. These glorious truths of the free grace of God and the Gospel lead us and motivate us and enable us to keep God's law, not to throw it away, but to obey it. What am I to do as one of your pastors if I want you to be holy? What do I do? If I want you to do good works, what do I do? I must never get tired of pointing you to the goodness and the grace of God. Look at verse 8. It's exactly what Paul tells to Titus, the pastor. He says, the saying is trustworthy and i want you to insist on these things now what does he mean insist on what things what's he talking about he says insist on these these truths of the free grace of god in the gospel insist on the cross insist on regeneration insist on righteousness that comes to people through faith alone in christ alone Insist on justification by grace. Insist on these things. Don't ever pull back on them. Don't ever get tired of saying this over and over and over again. Why? He says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See what he's saying? You want to be motivated to be holy? Do you want to be enabled to obey God in radical precise practical detailed concrete ways? You want to be motivated to obey God. Don't turn your back on the gospel. Don't get it into your mind that your obedience with God somehow earns your righteousness somehow earns your standing with God. If you go there, you will not be able to obey Him. What will motivate and enable people to be careful to devote themselves to good works is insisting on those kinds of things. Because as long as you're insecure in your relationship with God, as long as you aren't quite sure that He has accepted you, as long as you think, that His love for you is based on your performance, based on your obedience. As long as you try to whip up some kind of obedience to God's requirements out of this fear of punishment. As long as you try to obey just to make God like you, just to make, to make Him give you His favor because you've earned it, you will never make strides in your actual holiness and your obedience. That kind of mindset will kill you and leads you to despair and to failure or to self-righteousness and pride, it will not enable you to be holy. You'll never really grow in holiness until you come to rest in the free grace of the Gospel. That's the way God made it. Because the only solid foundation for holiness is your steadfast certainty that you are already washed, already forgiven, already redeemed, already justified in God's eyes. And then you don't obey with the, the obedience of a slave who's always afraid of getting the whip. So he's always looking behind his back, obeying when he thinks the master's looking, but it's not from the heart. You won't have that kind of obedience. You'll obey with the free love and gladness of a son who is perfectly secure in his relationship with his father. That is God's way of holiness. Let me read one more quote to you. I don't like reading quotes in sermons, but this one needs to be read. Horatius Bonner was a Scottish pastor and a hymn writer back in the 1800s. And he wrote it like this. I confess, I do not see how my being thoroughly persuaded that a holy God loves me with a holy love and has forgiven me all my sins, has a tendency to evil. He says, I, I, I don't understand what people think when they say that if you believe this freeness of the gospel, this freeness of justification, that that will lead you to disobey God. He says, I don't understand how that works. I can't see it. Because, he says, it seems of all truths, one of the likeliest to make me holy Justification by faith alone, by God's grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, is the truth that will make me holy. It will kindle love. It will stimulate to good works. It will abase my pride, he says. Whereas uncertainty in this matter, if I don't think God loves me, if I think that my, my, my standing with Him is based on my performance, uncertainty in this matter enfeebles me, darkens me, Bewilders me, incapacitates me for service, or at the best sets me striving to work my way into the favor of God under the influence of, of an inferior and selfish class of motives, which can do nothing but keep me dreading and doubting all the days of my life, leaving me, perhaps at the close, in hopeless darkness. You hear what he's saying? What about you? Are you living in the dark? Are you living with this constant dread of God's punishment? I'm speaking to you who are Christians now. Those of you who have not embraced Jesus Christ and who continue to shake your fist in God's face, you should live in a constant dread of God's punishment because that's what's coming to you. But for those of you who have embraced Jesus Christ who have come to Him for mercy, are you living in this fog of doubt? Are you uncertain of the free love and grace of God? Do you really think that you're standing with God based on you getting it right? Do you really think you can get it right? Do you really think that dread hanging over your head encourages you, helps you, motivates you, enables you to obey God? Is all of your obedience this desperate attempt to make God like you or to keep yourself in His favor? favor? Listen, be honest with yourself. Look at yourself. If that describes you, you need to embrace once again. Maybe you need to embrace for the very first time. Maybe you've never even come face to face with, with the Gospel and what it really means. You need to embrace the free grace of God in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and to stop trying to earn God's acceptance with your obedience, to stop trying to earn His love with your holiness, and to start obeying because He requires you to obey and He commands you to obey and He says you must obey, start obeying how? As a beloved child who is already accepted, who is already loved with an everlasting love, who is already welcomed, who is already adopted, who is already blessed with everything. Not in order to get the blessings, but because you have them. Obey God's requirements to be holy out of free love and gladness based on these incredible resources that will motivate you and enable you to obey Him. This table that we're about to partake in should remind us of this. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, taste, taste the Gospel and be encouraged by it and be enabled to obey God. Let's pray together and ask for His mercy.